0: I think the biggest thing is more personal with my own two kids. I mean, that's the most commonly used app on their phone, you know. (laughs) I don't know how many fathers can tell their kids to say, stop using my app.
1: This is Startup Island Taiwan, the channel all about cutting-edge technology, influential global tech players, and Taiwan. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John with Asianometry, and I'm here with Steve Chun, who is the co-founder of YouTube. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. It's kind of crazy to think about, like, um, I'm a YouTuber. been doing this the last four
0: or five years of my life and talking to the person who helped make the whole site possible. I mean, I think that, uh, of course, when we started it back in 2006, close to 20 years ago, it was still just a garage project, right? But then moving forward... I have to say, I mean, not to be boasting, but I really do think that it has transformed and changed the world. You have like 2 billion people that are watching the service every day. And then I think the biggest thing is more personal with my own two kids. I mean, that's the most commonly used app on their phone. You know, (laughs) I don't know how many fathers can tell their kids to say, stop using my app. (laughs) (laughs) Do you get to meet a lot of like other YouTubers and like learn about what their lives are like? Yes and no. I mean, whenever those opportunities come, it's always an exciting chance to on both sides, I think, for them to meet people that are on the sort of on the server, Google, YouTube hosting service side, as well as the flipping that around. But I think it's interesting because um, when we were there at YouTube, we tried to create a space that separated the service and the actual hosts and the content creators themselves. You wanted to try to remain as neutral as possible. Everybody is the same. Anybody that wants to come onto YouTube, it's a complete you know, democratic open platform. And it's going to be your creativity and it's going to be your content that actually brings you to the top or the bottom of search results or or related results right uh and so i think that uh, we've always tried to keep that separate although there's been i know over the period of time there's been some experiments with youtube itself trying to do a little bit more on the content creation side so you're talking about like maybe
1: some small youtuber would meet you and be like i'm a youtuber i want to be big can you help like give me a little boost on the side right kind of thing
0: I mean, there's all sorts of things, right, that kind of come in, and um, especially when the people that are asking the questions don't realize that my powers are limited given uh, how long I've been away from YouTube. But, you know, for tens of thousands of people and then around the world, hundreds of thousands of creators of YouTube, it's become kind of their dominant source of income. It's become their sort of primary job, right, to be a content creator on YouTube. And so I can see that it's just like anybody else with any of sort of occupation. There's going to be questions, there's going to be things that it's not clear. There's always something that goes wrong. And I think it's just continue to try to make that the most friendly experience possible. But I know that there's going to be cases that's going to fall outside of that. What was kind of like the video
1: sharing environment when you first started the Garage Project, as you say? Like, what was around? What was the big players like? Who was dominant there?
0: Well, it's a good question, right? Because I think it's very different from other startups from Silicon Valley. Because um, a lot of what you read, uh, you're getting uh, an MBA. There's a lot of strategies about how to create a startup, what should you should be thinking about, um, how should you be dealing with competition. But YouTube is different. And when we started in 2005, it was really YouTube versus the Reality, whether or not it was even possible to build a YouTube. The larger goal of YouTube is to be able to use internet as a channel for streaming videos, right? Uh, and before that, it was still, and when I say before that, I'm only talking six months before that, it was just not possible. The amount of broadband connection, the people that are doing the upload, the people that are doing the streaming, the technology that's built into the browser that allows you to watch a YouTube video inside the browser rather than having to download another application the video codecs and audio codecs to be able to have the same codecs that's on Apple computers, on Linux computers, Windows computers, whatever it is, to have the similar codecs so that one video can be viewed across any kind of platform that you're on. All these things came about just uh, six months to a year before YouTube in 2005 itself launched. And the big question, even when we developed and launched the service, was whether or not we could afford the bandwidth costs because nobody was doing video streaming at the time. And a large part of that was that you're not downloading the videos when you're watching a video on YouTube. As long as you watch that video five times, we pay for five times of that video streaming downstream. So bandwidth at that point was still very costly, very limited. And so when we launched the service, there was no competition. It was really just, is this possible or not. But I think it took about a year of time to really kind of scale up and really scale up on the bandwidth side of things. And it's just I think we were lucky again on the timing that the drop in cost for all that sort of dark internet at the time, they were actually opening up for more usage.
1: Were there any advances on the hardware side like racks or semiconductor side that kind of maybe enabled YouTube's growth in the 2000s?
0: Actually, I think we were a little bit too early on that front in that uh, the what you see as the cloud computing with Google Cloud, AWS with Amazon, what uh, Microsoft is doing, that all came way after 2005. So if you were to launch a service that required heavy usage of data centers, heavy usage of computational power, bandwidth, you had to do it yourself. And by that, I mean the difference between right now if you want to bring up 10 servers, it, you can do it all through your browser and you you log into the browser and you just say, you know, uh, how many machines, what kind of operating system, how much, everything is all virtual and you have no idea where that data center really is. Uh, It can be all over the world. Back in 2005, before cloud computing came about, it was four to six weeks before you needed the machine you had to place the order in they're gonna bring it drive it in into a truck and you have to be there when that (laughs) that machine it's uh these 42 u racks so i mean you have to be there with the help of other people to take these racks out You have to carry this stuff into the data centers, (laughs) plug it in yourself, do all the testing yourself, right? And then you have to actually fly to whether it's New Jersey, San Jose, different parts of the world to be physically there. It's just, I mean, I think that's the appeal of cloud computing, but at the same time, like before that There was no other alternative. You just had to do that yourself. Wow, that's so cool. Nowadays, you don't have to worry about any of that. You're just developing an app and releasing the app. But there's a whole part that if you're starting a service prior to cloud computing, you're doing all of that yourself. And so that was probably when I look back at the achievement of the team, I think that we've had more experience building the YouTube app itself. But the difficulty, a lot of that challenge was being able to scale up as the You know, it was doubling in traffic every two to three weeks. And so it was just making sure that we could guess and we can estimate, and we can accurately estimate what is it going to be like, given that it takes at least four to six weeks before you can upgrade and improve the sort of scalability of the service.
1: What was kind of the give and take like with maybe the product or the corporate side? Because maybe products are going to be like, I want to do this, I want to do that. And obviously there's some sort of engineering costs, bandwidth costs, computing costs. Like what was that sort of like give and take like? Because obviously YouTube wanted to innovate. They want to keep building new features, want to ship new stuff. Did you ever have to like sit down and be like, you got to stop. Like we're on
0: fire here or something like that. Yeah, I think there were uh, in terms of Bigger phases, and there are a lot of bullet points that are details of that. But the two big phases are just from a product standpoint, the growth, and we measured growth on a few key metrics that we shared every day with both the investors as well as every employee within the company. Um, and it was the number of videos that were viewed that day, the number of new content creators that are registering that day, and then just the total number of videos that are uploaded that day, and everything came down to those simple three metrics that we were measuring. So if we had a product idea, how do you prioritize and allocate resources? Where do you start hiring? All of that was based on we're just improving these metrics. And then the second part of it is uh, the sort of the monetization of the, the service. But much of Silicon Valley, we received funding from Sequoia Capital. And in uh, and that sort of Series A, Series B phase, It's really about making sure that the service, the app, the site, the company that has potential to be able to showcase that, to be able to have the metrics that actually define that. And then I think in the case of YouTube, very shortly after raising the Series B, We talked to Google about the acquisition, and it was only post-acquisition that we really began conversations about how to monetize the service. So I think we were sort of in the middle of scaling out the service and then the monetization in between those two when the acquisition happened. But I think as a company that was still a private company, we really focused 100% on just scaling out the service. So after the
1: acquisition and you joined Google, you talked a little bit about being like entrepreneur in residence. So what was that like? So what was that experience? Uh, What did you spend your time doing and focusing on?
0: Yeah. So that's fast forwarding a bit. Uh, Like So what, um, 2005, we launched YouTube. In late 2006 was the acquisition by Google, right? Uh, And then I stayed on board at YouTube until about the end of 2010, uh, early 2011. A large part of that was focused on the integration of YouTube into Google. And I have to say that we were pleasantly surprised at how much autonomy Chad and I were given in terms of the sort of power responsibilities decision making for YouTube and that still in my late 20s and you know you have Google with all the resources and of course all the people that the staff and the resources that they have but they still let a couple 20 year olds be running a service that they just acquired it was so different actually because we Chad and I both came from PayPal before YouTube and that acquisition was completely different the acquisition of PayPal was done by eBay. And the week after the acquisition, you know, the Elon Musk, the Peter Thiels, the Max Levchins, uh, Reid Hoffman's, all those guys that have gone off and this is sort of that, they're all let go, right? Because eBay immediately thought that they had a much better idea. Of course, there was um, the rationale, the impetus behind the acquisition, but I think they also had a much better idea of being able to go in there. And to be able to scale out PayPal better than the original founders and the C-level executives. And I think that uh, that's the safer route to go, I have to say. And But I want to say that I think with Google giving the original team of YouTube still the command of what they want to do, how to prioritize. As long as you can continue to scale out those key metrics that I mentioned, everything else is in your hands to control and these are all the resources that we have on the Google side, whether it's uh, developing a mobile app, whether it's uh, internationalization, localization, translation, whether it's integrating with Google Maps, whether it's on the backend on the scalability side, uh, the search side, the recommendation side, you guys have full access to the resources at Google. But as long as you can improve these metrics, you guys make the call. And it was kind of, I think, a very humble decision on their part to say, like, uh, we trust these 20-year-olds to use any resources at Google to build out the service. But at the same time, I think that gave everybody within the company this boost of just motivation, even though it's no longer a private, you know, startup company, there is almost a uh, greater responsibility now that you have Google watching you and you have to meet the, uh, you have to keep doubling your metrics and uh, you have, there's no excuse to say you ran out of money. But then, you know, after 2010, 2011, at that point, the, the big change was we really started figuring out the monetization of YouTube. And that was the big stage where it was, and the monetization was, of course, you can get the ads in, but I think a big part of it was the ad revenue sharing. And they were very generous about that from the very beginning to make sure that YouTube would not be around and would not be sustainable without content creators. And the content creators have to be sort of still happy with the service. And so that was a big part of it was that I think uh, Google itself, they were willing to go whatever distance, however long, without making money as long as the content creators were happy. And a service like that, you have to prioritize what's more important if you have to make a decision? Do you prioritize the quarterly financial results or do you prioritize the long-term sustainability of the service? You have to make the content creators happy. You have to make the viewers happy. You have to make the advertisers happy. You don't necessarily have to make the stockholders happy right now because the long term is that the components that make up the company are happy with the service. Do you consider the
1: customers the advertisers or the content creators?
0: Both. I think it was always this relationship between the viewers, content creators, and the advertisers. And the hurdle that we've always had in trying to monetize YouTube was, how do you make all three happy? The advertisers want their ads to be placed in the most relevant times for the most relevant audiences. But the big ask is, you know, you need the advertisers in order to do the revenue share, but no viewer likes to have their viewing interrupted by ads. And I think the real key solution there was to make it apparent to the viewers that Without these ads, there would be no revenue to share with the content creators. And without these ads, you're not going to be able to watch the content. But that's a key part of it in there was, I think, very different from what you see on, say, uh, on TV. You don't get that relationship between so much the content creators and the advertisers. Whereas on YouTube, a lot of the time, the content creators in their content will make references to advertisers they will make references to the support that they're actually getting from the ads and i think that was the key part to make the viewers understand that okay watching ads it's not something that i prefer to do but it's something that's kind of in a way giving back to the content creators and so i'll do it so after you figured out the monetization what made you decide it was like it was time to kind of take your next step to your next stage Well, around 2010, 2011, I think the checkboxes on this original idea were checked in terms of building out something, um, scaling it out, of course, like the acquisition, continuing to scale it out after the acquisition. And then the big piece was monetization. I mean, uh, there was an internationalization effort that went uh, as soon as the acquisition happened. So it was launching in 12 countries and then uh, making sure that not just a localized translator product, but then working with content creators in these countries and then making sure that We abided by the different rules when it comes to content creation and what content is allowed and not permitted in each of the countries. Internationalization was part, but the big piece was the monetization. That took the longest time. And starting from later 2010, different experiments started guiding us to say, okay, the monetization with revenue sharing does work and let's build that out. And in Silicon Valley, there are always so many opportunities, so many knocks on the door. And so it's just trying to figure out something else. And the immediate next project to work on was actually not going back as a uh, entrepreneur resident at Google Ventures, but it was working with Chat again. It, we started an incubator called um, Avos at the time, A-V-O-S. And the idea there was not so much that we had an uh, we had a lot of ideas. We always shared an office, and even after the acquisition, every time the doors were closed, we talked about what we wanted to do at YouTube. We always talked about what about this as a project, what about this as a project. So we thought, well, like afterwards, like it'd be great to be able to experiment around and try out. So we started an incubator at the time. We fundraised. We made a few acquisitions. Um, we bought a, at the time Delicious from Yahoo. We brought on a lot of the engineers that were at YouTube. Google. We had um, an office in China at the time and then a couple other locations outside of Silicon Valley. And so it's important to mention it because I think in Silicon Valley, although Avos itself and the incubator project didn't take off. I think it's valuable to actually instead of just avoiding the failures and only talking about the successes, I think part of Silicon Valley is it's just as important to talk about the failures and that uh there has to be a reason behind succeeding or failing. And I think it's important to note those failures and so you don't make those mistakes again. You know, um and so I think that uh the key part and the challenge with an incubator is that We had many different ideas and we had a team that could work on any of these ideas. But inevitably, each one of these ideas, they're going to face their own set of unique challenges and you're going to have to devote time and innovation uh, and energy into solving these problems. Now, if you had only one company like YouTube, and at that time, the only thing you have is survival, you're going to live or die. The company will live or die based on how soon and how quickly and whether or not you're successful in overcoming these hurdles. When you actually have five or six different companies, the natural actual reaction is, I'm going to table this for now. And I'm going to just work on this other project that I'm just as excited about. And so, you know, I think that even to this day, I think some of the ideas that we had back then were still good ideas, But just like every startup, that's the part where kind of I think that Silicon Valley innovation, that energy comes in. Well, if there is a detour that you can always take, then it makes it, I think, all that much harder for you to be really successful and focus on the problems to make a a company, a product, an idea succeed. I agree. When you're working between all these
1: different things is really kind of spreading yourself way too thin. And that does seem to be a big challenge with a lot of these diversified companies, I guess. Well,
0: Google has so many of these now, but um, Google Ventures itself, GV, which is now I think under um, Alphabet because it kind of split out. A big part of the exit at Google, when you're saying uh, as an engineer, you're ready to leave Google, one of the questions that they always ask is, so what are you going to do tomorrow? You know, And usually the folks are leaving because they're either joining another startup or they have their own idea that they want to work on. If you're still going to be working as a salaried employee, Google's probably one of the best places to be, and so there's there's another place that you want to work at. It's probably because you want to start something on your own. Well, Google Ventures, a large part of it was recognizing that, and usually they're kind of the iconic leaders in these technology verticals already, and that's why they were at Google doing things that they were doing, leading the charge in a lot of these efforts. Well, most likely, if anyone's going to succeed, it's going to be that person in that sector in that vertical. So Google Ventures a large part of it was, okay, well, that's fine that you're going to leave. What about working with Google Ventures, either as what I was doing in EIR, an entrepreneur in residence, or just we'll fund and we'll invest in whatever that you want to do. And the role of the EIR is, I think it's more of a unique position in Silicon Valley. Just describe it. It's we have no idea what you're going to do. But before we know, we'll just give you the check to, to do whatever it is that you want to do. I mean, it's essentially free play money. But they're not going to do that for, say, a fresh grad coming out of college. It's going to be somebody that, um, that has demonstrated over a period of time that they're committed and they have the ideas. And I think repetition and I think this, this notion of serial entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley is a very, I think it does make a key difference, um, that there are things that you learn through your first startup that you can really, mistakes and successes both, that you can apply to your second startup and your third startup, but you must have had the opportunity to be there on the battlefield. It's hard to teach this stuff in a textbook. And so I think uh, the more experience, and especially on both sides from companies that are successful, so through acquisition, through IPOs, going public, um, to ones that failed, if you have that experience, that means a lot more. Even when it comes to sort of when I look at my own investments and angel investment, when I'm looking at companies, what's the most important thing for me is actually not so much the idea. To me, I think it's more important what the co-founders, who they are and what they've done in the past. I think it's just too hard to say that You're going to have enough vision to know before you even launch this first product that this is going to be the thing five, 10 years from now. It'll still remain this. You're going to have to make changes along the way. I mean, YouTube itself was like after a week of release, it changed completely from a dating video site to a (laughs) generic video site. Right. I mean, but I think if we were so obstinate on like it had to be a video dating service. That would have never worked out. But I think like just to have the knowledge to be able to confess and say and make the changes to say like, okay, maybe we were wrong. Let's try to do something else. And I think that's the key part of the early phases of companies. So jumping a little bit forward, like
1: now you're here in Taiwan and you're working on a company. I haven't heard too much about it. Like you talk a little bit about it or what can you can really share about it right now? Yeah. So when
0: I first came to Taiwan, it was 2019. And I'll say the kind of to paint that background is that it wasn't coming to Taiwan to start something. It was more coming to Taiwan for a lot more of just personal and life decisions rather than from work, right? But uh, like after a few weeks, after spending 20 years in Silicon Valley, like you just naturally wanna do something in technology. You wanna do something in the startup space again. And so very quickly after landing and settling down, it was this exploration and discovery process. And it was interesting because the big looming question for me was that, um I don't know if you know this, but in Silicon Valley, There are a lot of successful entrepreneurs that are Taiwanese-Americans, and it's a disproportionately high ratio. In terms of the 23 million people that live in Taiwan that are from Taiwan, But how many of those in their sort of uh, first, second generation in the U.S. coming from anywhere around the U.S. but settling down in Silicon Valley? But then coming here to Taiwan, I have to say it was a little confused as to what's been happening in Taiwan for the last 10, 15, 20 years. Because obviously you have some of the largest semiconductor companies that have come out of Taiwan. You have Foxconn that's coming out of Taiwan. But those are all very established but older companies. What's the difference between uh, Taiwanese Americans in Silicon Valley versus what's being done here? And I think when it comes to questions like that, the best way to find the answer is to try to do it yourself and to be able to figure out. So I think it was a great experience to see, okay, so what is special about Silicon Valley or what is different about Taiwan when doing something here in Taiwan? So that was a large part of it was let's launch a service that is, that's a little bit different from, I think, local startups here because um, it was version one, let's go, for the global space, uh, internationalized, so it'll be in English. Anybody that wants to download this can download it and use it. It's not sort of a, let's launch and use Taiwan as a testbed. And then after it takes off, we can make some of the changes and then we can scale out into version two for the rest of the world. And it was working with uh, angel investors from Silicon Valley, working with the kind of partnerships in Silicon Valley. And the key difference really is just the engineers would be local here in Taiwan. But everything else, I mean, including myself is like sort of an entrepreneur so from Silicon Valley, the investors from Silicon Valley, the ideas and the, the sort of formulation of these ideas, it's all kind of Silicon Valley thinking. And I want to say that I think it was a great, again, um, learning experience about what is it that makes Silicon Valley more special, you know, uh, and why is it hard to do? Why is it hard to replicate this in Taiwan? And without going too much into the specifics, I think that, There are definitely notable differences I think that contribute and make a big difference And what I'd love to do is kind of moving forward after that. Is there a way that we could make these differences go away? I guess it would say instead of doing just one startup, I think the one startup was a great learning experience to see, okay, what is it like to do something in Taiwan? Now, taking what we've learned, is there a way to be able to apply a solution to fix the issues and the challenges that we face in starting something here in Taiwan for anybody that wants to start something in Taiwan. So more so in in the last year and a half, it's been more of a focus on creating and making Taiwan a sort of a better Silicon Valley in a way in Asia to be able to create companies from Taiwan. But with the key differences of focusing on not just within the boundaries of Taiwan but really from a Silicon Valley idea and thought process of this thing is going to be a global service it's going to be a global app you know where it's going to apply to the daily lives of anybody around the world it's not just taking a look at the problems that say an individual in Taiwan faces and let's fix that because in all reality no no matter how successful you are with that Taiwan's an island in more ways than one you know and i think that uh no matter how successful you are with this, unless you have a broader vision of building something outside of just the 23 million people, you're going to be stuck in a lot of areas in terms of growth, scalability, potential investments, VCs, acquisitions. Like VCs just wouldn't be interested if you're only targeting a, if this audience of 23 million people, no matter how successful you are. When you speak with Taiwanese
1: American entrepreneurs in the Silicon Valley, and you talk about you know your work in Taiwan or stuff like that, what are their thoughts about like Taiwan's progress on technology, maybe in the VC kind of Silicon Valley space in software?
0: Like, what are they thinking? Well, my personal honest opinion is that there are challenges in Taiwan that you're going to face that you just don't face in Silicon Valley. There are sort of possibilities that are just impossible in Taiwan, right? I mean, I think a, a key part of it is. The concentration of everybody being in Silicon Valley, from the VCs to the entrepreneurs to the larger companies like Apple and Facebook and Google, like uh a... In some ways, I think uh, the acquisition of YouTube would not have happened if we weren't in Silicon Valley because within a period of five days, we closed that acquisition and we talked to Jerry Yang from Yahoo face to face. We talked to everyone from Larry, Sergey, Eric Schmidt, David Drummond, the folks that were making that key decision on the Google side. We were able to talk to them twice uh, within those five days, and we were able to go through that weekend all the legal and all the questions that they were asking before that acquisition was announced on Monday after market close. Uh, We were able to do that all within that compressed five-day period. Now, if you were not physically there, there's no chance that you're going to be able to be able to compress all that into a five day period. So certain things like that, it's always gonna be an advantage to be physically there on the ground. But then at the same time, like some of the biggest issues that Silicon Valley is always facing is that as a startup, you need good engineers and you're competing with companies that almost seem like you know they have an infinite role when it comes to hiring good engineers, right? And so I think it's trying to take it ways of observing and noting the advantages and disadvantages of doing something in Taiwan, and then hopefully, removing the disadvantages and then taking advantage of the advantages that Taiwan offers. What do you think is
1: Taiwan's sort of strongest technological advantage could be offered to entrepreneurs or not only in Taiwan, but also abroad as well?
0: I think Taiwan's very good with a disproportionately high number of solid, good engineers. And coming from Silicon Valley, that's great to be able to find any place that you can find good engineers. I think one of the biggest weaknesses of Taiwan is trying to find the founders and the co-founders that have that global vision. I think in order to have the global vision, in order to make the product decisions, you really must have been yourself one of those users. In that, what I mean is like you had to be outside of like yeah, Taiwan. Yeah, you had to live outside of Taiwan to actually know what your customers want, right? And uh, there's not enough of that sort of bi-directional communication, travel, like lifestyle to be able to elevate the individuals to be these global entrepreneurs, right? Um, And I think that one of the interesting things was actually with COVID, so many people were actually coming to Taiwan because it was the safest place. And that brought a change, I think, in terms of all of a sudden, you have this influx of the entrepreneurs that was, I think, missing when I first came here in 2019. It was like scratching my head to say like, well, this is something that's missing in Taiwan. Unfortunately, many of them, when things open back up. Many of them returned to the U.S., but some of them have stuck around. And so I think in the coming years, it'll be interesting to see what kind of develops if there's a tighter collaboration between these sort of entrepreneurs that have this lived outside of Taiwan, that have some ideas, um, that have the experience and the connections working with the engineers here to be able to collaborate.
1: What do you think can be done to kind of help spur more entrepreneurial spirit amongst younger Taiwanese people? Like give them a plane ticket to fly to like
0: your Europe or the States for a couple of years? Or like, what are your kind of like general, just random thoughts? I think the key thing is to have some notable examples of successes to be able to actually associate some value with equity that you're giving to the employees. Um, When we were doing hiring here, it was so different from Silicon Valley. And in then in Silicon Valley, yeah, you know, you're getting two things, right? You're getting what your salary is, but much more important is your equity, your stock package, and you know uh, the four-year vesting period. And I think when we were starting our company here in Taiwan with the hiring, it was much more difficult to convince the salary meant much more than stock because there's just historically not many companies are showcasing that the stock equity is actually more valuable than your salary, much more valuable if the company succeeds. And the whole point of joining a startup rather than a much larger established company is you're not looking for the safety of a monthly salary. You're taking a bit of a risk on your own career, but at the potential reward of getting something much, much, much larger than what you would accumulate through a sort of whatever biweekly salary. But it really requires one or two big home runs to be hit before people start realizing that compensation from equity is valuable. And when Silicon Valley, you see that every day. And so everybody going to Silicon Valley, sometimes they say like, I don't need a salary. I'll be willing to trade in whatever salary if you can give me even just 5,000 more stock. You would never hear that here in Taiwan.
1: You talked a little bit about some of the challenges of fundraising in Taiwan. So tied to that stock bit, I've also heard about this complaint from my coworkers as well. So how has that changed? Has that improved? Has it stayed the same? Like, is it? Have you seen kind of the gears slowly turning on that? Like,
0: what's the kind of the landscape on fundraising right now in Taiwan? I think it's a complicated issue, and it has something to do also with kind of on the legal side of how do you establish the company because. You're not. Are you establishing yourself as a corporation in the U.S. versus are you establishing yourself here in Taiwan? Um, and there are sort of recipes to follow for that. But when it comes to following those recipes, then it comes down to how are you getting the fundraising? Are they? Are you fundraising for the entity in the outside of Taiwan, the holding company? Or are you fundraising for companies here? And then that also then leads to who and what types of investors, what types of VCs that you talk to. Some of the VCs in U.S. they would only want to invest in U.S.-based companies versus outside. And then it's very different to VCs that are based here in Taiwan versus VCs that are based out in Silicon Valley. I think that if the goal is to go for a global company to be more tied to Silicon Valley, then you want to go with a VC that's in Silicon Valley. Just like, as we mentioned earlier, there's not the clear history, the track record that Taiwan is able to show.
1: Who would be kind of like a leading Taiwanese-based Venture capitalist that you think is on the right path?
0: I think there are a few VCs that started outside of Taiwan that see the potential in Taiwanese entrepreneurs and engineers that incentivize them to open up a sort of a branch office with a local fund that's targeted towards companies based in Taiwan. I think that's already a good start. I think you need that bridge if you have somebody that sits on your board that's on your team that uh, has invested in you that have both offices here and around the world like uh it goes to help a lot with the right VC, right advisors to be able to figure out how to start expanding um as you start running into whatever issues that you have in scaling out the service you have at least the help and the mentorship of of a global team. What sort of advice or kind of thoughts you might have for people living
1: abroad or people listening to this podcast about kind of starting a company or scaling kind of Silicon Valley style company in Taiwan?
0: I think you got to have like confidence and trust in yourself to be able to do this because it unfortunately, or there aren't many companies that have come before you when it comes to starting these companies. And so, for example, like all the things at YouTube, there was a lot that we learned from the paypal days the five six years spent at paypal there was the ipo itself of paypal there was an acquisition there was a post acquisition about how to integrate paypal into ebay and then there was again a separation of paypal from ebay like many of those experiences every step along the way from the early days of scalability from a lot of the legal issues um how are you going to create the uh, start charging the merchants a percentage of the fees Uh, There's a big part with, uh, we mentioned earlier, but but with the way that you integrate into eBay, that led us to even decide, like, we're going to go with Google rather than Yahoo when it comes to the acquisition, because we believe that Google is a lot more open about keeping YouTube in its organic form after the acquisition all those experiences are highly relevant and they're they're very critical but it's hard to find those people with that experience here in Taiwan just because it doesn't i mean it's not the fault of any one person it's just that there is no place to get that experience and so i think if there's anything that can be done i would love to see ways to be able to attract more of these entrepreneurs that already have an idea, uh, that already have connections to investors. And this is so common in Silicon Valley is that they need to work with a team of three, four very good engineers, iOS engineers, designers. And then if you can pair that up and if you combine these two, I think that'll be only a good thing to be able to see what comes out of that. Right. But I think uh, right now in Taiwan, there's still a huge open gap between there are entrepreneurs that need good engineers and there are good engineers that would love to work with entrepreneurs that are well connected. I think that'd be great to be able to do on a broader scale, not for a single startup, but just a broader scale for all Taiwanese engineers or people that have interest, uh, not just in engineering space, but even in the various different sectors of a a startup. If they want to be working on a startup, this is where you come and this is how you connect with different ideas and different entrepreneurs.
1: It's a very interesting time in Taiwan, and hopefully we'll see more of these kind of situations, more stories to inspire people and maybe the work you can do to help improve things here.
0: I went to Silicon Valley in 1999 after seeing, uh, this is dating me, but it was like a Yahoo and and Netscape. And those were started in like 1995. I'm like, well, if they can do it, you know, uh, I'm going to go out there. And I mean, PayPal originally was not even like a payment service. It was like some kind of security app that you downloaded onto your Palm Pilot, which none of these things exist even anymore. But I, I think that in a way, I think of it as Taiwan needs its Netscape needs its Yahoo in order to spark this whole next generation of startups. They just need to know that it's possible to do. Steve Chan, thank you so much for taking the time. We really
1: appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.